0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good morning. My name is Mei Fong, and I'm the Director of Strategy at the Center for Public Integrity. And I'm so pleased to be a moderator today at the Commonwealth Club's program, which is talking about the myth of Chinese capitalism. And I'm really pleased to be here today with my friend Tiff Roberts, who is um, the Mansfield Fellow at the University of Montana, a brilliant journalist and a writer, and the author of a new book, which is called The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and the Future of the World. Now, this is a critically important book to understand how surging um, income inequality um, and a very unfair social welfare system And rising social tensions are blocking China's economic rise in the world and complicating the already troubled relationship we have between China, the United States and the world. Now, both Tiff and I have been longtime journalists in China and um, him for Business Week and myself for the Wall Street Journal. So I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with him on a topic that's very important to us. But before we jumped into this conversation, uh, one final note. Uh, if you have any questions for myself or Tiff, uh, do please post it in the YouTube chat box, or they can be forwarded to me during the program so welcome Tiff. It's great to see you again.
1: Well, thank you very much for such a kind introduction may um, it's great to see you virtually again um, uh, unfortunately uh, we're not doing this in person for obvious reasons but Um, uh, Wonderful to see you here today, Um, and thank you uh, to the Commonwealth Club for giving us this opportunity. I think I'd like to start today by uh, doing a brief uh, introduction to the story of how I came about to write my book, and to do so, I'm going to use some slides here, show you some of the people and places in the book. I'll keep it relatively brief so that we have more time for the interesting part which will be our conversation and then of course the questions from the audience as well. Excellent. So, as I said, uh, I'd like to start by talking about how I came to write my book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. And in order to do so, uh, I have to take everyone back to quite a few years, about 20 years to the year 2000. Um, at that point, uh, I had been in China for about five years and been covering the business story, as you mentioned earlier, mainly working, or working for Business Week full-time at that point. And uh, had been spending a lot of time for that reason in the big cities of Beijing, where I was based, and Shanghai and Shenzhen and places like that. Uh, but that year, the year 2000, I did two cover stories that took me to a part of China that I had never been to before. And the first of those, uh, you can see pictured here, uh, was called China's Wealth Gap. And this uh, cover story was looking at the already then fast growing gap between the coastal regions of China and the interior. I I went uh, for this reporting to the province of Guizhou in Southwestern China. Then, uh, and unfortunately still today, one of the much poorer parts of China. And uh, just a little context to that, uh, to to the reporting for this story and uh, the topic. Uh, At that point, uh, we'd seen uh, a couple decades since uh, Deng Xiaoping Xiaoping opened the economy and started reform and opening. And we'd seen uh, rapid growth. But much of that concentrated on the coasts so there was a policy by the then leader Jiang Zemin uh, called develop the west which was an effort to try to address that uh, already strong growing gap between the coasts and the interior that same year again 2000 I, I went back to Guizhou um, for a second cover story you can see it pictured here uh, for business week the great migration I was looking at the already hundreds of millions of strong migrant workers that were, uh, in response to this uh, unequal development, were leaving their homes in places like Guizhou and going to the coast to work in the factories and uh, then construct factories and construction sites. Mainly at that point, this uh, young gentleman, then young, pictured here on the cover of the of Business Week, is named Mo and he is someone that I met then for the first time. First met him in uh, Dongguan uh, in Guangdong province where he was working uh, along with uh, millions of other migrant workers in uh, the export oriented factories uh, there along the Pearl River Delta. And then later was to meet him many times in his hometown uh, in uh, rural Guizhou province. So I I focus my book by looking really at two places in China, uh, representative of uh, uh, both the the wealth gap and the tremendous uh, growth that you and I both experienced and wrote about uh, in our years in China, May. And uh, the two places on the right, you can see the village that the Morubua, who you just saw hailed from, called the Pinghua uh, in the southeastern part of this province of Guizhou, and on the uh, the other the other picture is of a uh, typical factory scene. This happens to be an uh, SUV factory in Guangzhou, Guangdong, up the just up the river from Dongguan, where where I met Mo Rubuo, and another big factory cluster uh, in uh, China's Pearl River Delta. Uh, this is another picture of. Mo Ru Boa, I believe he was 21 when I met him. He had already left uh, his village for probably five years and he had been a true migrant. He had worked in Shanghai, he'd worked in a city called Ningbo, a big coastal city not far from Shanghai, and then worked in a number of different jobs around Guangdong before I met him, uh, where he was working, as you can see here, as a welder uh, in a Taiwanese owned electronic components factory in the city of Dongguan. Another picture of Mo Bo, here he is pictured with his then girlfriend who uh, also comes from also a migrant worker working in a different factory there in Dongguan, comes from a different part of China, but also a province that is a t- traditionally been a big source of migrant workers, the province of Henan up in the north. Um, and so they met there in Dongguan. Another person uh, that I spent a lot of time with is pictured here, uh, also surnamed Mo. Most of the people in this small village of Binghuatsun share the same surname and are distantly related, which is common in in the smaller villages in China. Uh, Her name was Mo Meichuan, and uh, she's here in the the bright red vest jacket. Um, I had met her in Dongguan uh, uh, outside the factory she was working in several months earlier, and then Uh, when I visited the village of Binghuatun, I met her again. She had returned for two reasons. One was to help her parents with the rice harvest. And the other one, which was probably far more important, was to renew her identity card. At that point, and again, we're going back to the year 2000, uh, migrant workers in China were very vulnerable to local police authorities. And one of the things that could happen to them was, if they did not have all the proper documentation on them, and that included a, uh, an up-to-date identity card, they could get picked up and put into what they called black jails. Uh, then, effectively held for ransom, where they would have to pay several months of their salary, equivalent to several months of their salary, in order to get out. So, she something like something like this had, had happened to one of her uh, one of her distant relatives. Uh, in this, in the village there. So she had gone back to make sure that she wouldn't get uh, in trouble with the local police because of this expired identity card. Uh, I visited again uh, Guizhou for the first time in the year 2000, visited the village of Pinghuatsun that year. Uh, this was actually before China was to enter the World Trade Organization, which came one year later. Um, but uh, at that point, People in China already knew that they were going to, uh, that China was going to enter the World Trade Organization. These key bilateral agreements had been negotiated between the US and China in late 1999, which was a big part of my early reporting in China, covering China's entry into the World Trade Organization. So even in this little village, uh, they knew that China uh, was going to, about a year later, enter the World Trade Organization. And uh, I remember talking to the Village party chief, and he was very hopeful that uh, with China's entry into the World Trade Organization, and frankly, with uh, uh, after talking to a foreign journalist, that this might bring investment to his village, and he was very hopeful that they would get a vegetable and fruit processing factory, so they could move beyond the then uh, their then reliance on subsistence agriculture and uh, remittances. From the migrants, uh, the the young people that left the village and became migrant workers. So China enters the World Trade Organization. Uh, We know the broad dimensions of what happened. Um, It brought literally tens of thousands of new investors into China. Factories uh, sprung up uh, even more throughout the Pearl River Delta, up near Shanghai and the Yangtze River Delta. Uh, It created countless new jobs for these young people from the countryside. And we saw China's economy grow very rapidly and the living standards of its people uh, go up uh, dramatically as well. So uh, sort of jumping forward to the present, and I will wrap this up shortly. Uh, uh, So WTO, as I said, brings tremendous progress to China, undeniable uh, improvement in living standards uh, across the board. Uh, it brings infrastructure throughout the country. This is a picture here of rural Guizhou, not far from that same village of Binghuatsun that I write about in my book, um, and uh, this is a very recent picture. Uh, the uh, expressways, high-speed rail went was built throughout China, including in remote places like Guizhou, and this indeed did help local economies. If you look at this picture very closely, you can see the there's a gold and uh, and red billboard along the expressway, and the gold and the red. Just a side note is a is a clue that this is a this that this is communist Chinese Communist Party propaganda. I think I can't read it right from here, but I think it was a, a Xi Jinping slogan. So we saw infrastructure built throughout the country, and also, of course, uh, propaganda reached deep into China. So. Um, bringing us to, to, to today uh, as I said uh, you know undeniable progress China has uh, set some centennial goals next year will be the hundredth anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party uh, which was founded in 1921 and for that uh, for that celebration China has announced that they will end absolute poverty and as some of you may have seen recently they have uh, basically achieved that so they have met that goal. Uh, they also, uh, as part of the centennial goal goals, announced that they would uh, double GDP from and also double disposable per capita income between the years of two thousand and ten and two thousand and twenty. And even with COVID nineteen, which uh, uh, slowed the economy, we it looks like they're going to achieve that goal as well. So very impressive. Uh, I'd like to highlight quickly, however, another statistic, uh, which says a lot about the challenges that still lie ahead for China. When, when I first uh, visited Guizhou in 2000 uh, and wrote about this effort to narrow the wealth gap, a statistic that I always heard about from local officials was the fact that rural incomes on average uh, were about one third that of urban incomes. Well, that uh, proportion is still roughly the same. So despite all the years of effort and the real growth in incomes, there's still this about one to three gap between uh, between those people from the countryside and those people from the cities. Um, At the same time, we've seen an explosion in wealth inequality in China. And Thomas Piketty, the noted inequality expert has found that uh, the wealth gap in China is roughly comparable to that in Russia, which might come as a surprise to some people. Um, even more worryingly, uh, it's growing at about the same speed as that uh, as as it's growing in Russia, which is also very very fast. So, um, as I argue in my book, um, I think that uh, the one of the there's a couple of legacy policies in China that explain why uh, this gap still exists today. And probably uh, almost uh, certainly, actually, more important than any other policy that still exists in China today that has uh, a very negative influence on uh, income growth in rural China is something called the household registration policy, or in Chinese, the hukou. Now, this is a policy that was set up during the Mao era uh, in order to keep rural people uh, working then in communes, um, and 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 therefore. Uh, having a, uh, adequate cheap food for people in the cities that were supposed to carry out the industrialization of China. So this policy still exists today. Uh, it has changed in that uh, it used to bar uh, people from rural China from coming to the cities. Obviously that has been completely uh, tossed out. So now you have and at maybe 300 million people, uh, migrant workers that have left the countryside and come to work in the cities. Uh, but what the household registration policy still does today is tie uh, every person's access to social welfare, access to healthcare and education to the place where they were born or actually more specifically where their parents were born. And what that means in effect for uh, China today China's people today is that some one half the population of migrants uh, and their relatives in the countryside are uh, receiving much lower quality health care. They have to get it, uh, they're supposed to be getting it from rural China, Um, and also uh, their children are receiving far inferior uh, education as well. It also uh, is the Uh, source of this really a human rights tragedy uh, in China today, which is what they refer to as the left behind children phenomena. And that is uh, the the reality that up to 100 million young people, the children of migrant workers, uh, typically do not travel to the cities and live with their parents where their parents work, but stay behind in the countryside because of that restriction on where they can get educated. Um, And uh, many of them today, live in large impersonal boarding schools and uh, are not receiving very good education there, and also face some really sad uh, both physical and psychological issues related to growing up in uh, in these boarding schools. Typically, they see their parents once a year. Quickly, the last policy that I do talk about in my book, which I think is also key to explaining the, the continuing existence of this inequality is the dual land system. Uh, it is again a policy that originated many years ago under Mao. And what it does in effect is uh, ensure that while people in the cities are able to buy and sell their apartments, and, and they've done it uh, with great gusto uh, and become very wealthy in many cases doing so, most uh, rural people, and that includes the migrant workers, are unable to actually buy and sell their property at uh, market rates. Uh, one last picture. This is a, a, a one of the more recent visits I had to Mo Bo. Unlike many migrants, he has opted to stay in Dongguan. Many migrants now are returning to their villages to try to reinvent themselves uh, now that China's factories are automating and also some uh, manufacturing is moving overseas. So Mo Ru Boa and uh, his wife, uh, which is the same uh, the same person we saw that was the young woman, his girlfriend in the earlier picture uh, from Henan, uh, they're married. Uh, they run a small business sourcing uh, athletic apparel. And they have their own small brand, which none of us would have ever heard of, and not even the people, most people in Beijing and Shanghai would know about. Uh, not very easy, struggling to get by there. Uh, they have their office in their small apartment, which they rent. They can't afford to buy. Uh, during that visit, the big issue they were struggling with was what to do uh, about the, the fourth person in the picture, their daughter, who was turning six, what to do about her education. And Boa was adamant that she would not go back and become a left behind child in the villages or in the townships near where he had grown up. Uh, but instead uh, would go to school and, and live with them there in Dongguan in the city. And that was uh, very, very difficult because he already knew she wouldn't be able to go to the public schools. And that the alternative then was a small private school, uh, of which there are many that have uh, been created to cater to the migrant workers' kids. Uh, not only are they typically of far poorer quality than the, the urban public schools, but they are also often very expensive. So I'd like to just uh, stop there. I think maybe I went on a little longer than I should have. So I'm going to uh, hand this back to May now, and uh, we can continue with our conversation, probably the far more interesting part.
0: Hey, Tim. No, that was really great to see all these um, photos and um, that took you on the journey for the book. And I, of course, have been very fascinated by some of these issues. Um, uh, just very quickly before we, um, jump into the discussion, we had an interesting question from the audience that w- was asking you if, uh you spoke Mandarin and whether you had any issues with a language barrier. <laughs> and, I w- you know, you've been in China for 20 plus years and you probably speak Mandarin way better than I do, <laughs> but I was going to say, um, part of the, I'm sure, you know, part of w- venturing out into uh, outside of Beijing and, uh, um, and, and, and Shanghai and the big cities is that it's actually a different kind of Chinese spoken out there, right? There's a there's Guizhou and all, all the different dialects and things. It's actually a uh, quite a difficult process. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Sure. Yeah, well, the village that I spent so much time in, the, in and that I write about in my book, Bing Hua Sun, actually is uh, the people there are actually not the majority Han Chinese. They're uh, an ethnic minority group very small one called Bui, which many people have not heard of, and they have their own language. Uh, but uh, they also, uh, most of them do speak Mandarin. And in, there were several people, including Mo uh, uh typically migrant workers who had spent years outside the village that actually spoke quite standard uh, Mandarin Chinese. So the fact that they had left as young people had really, uh, all that time in the factories, uh, they'd earned a little bit of money, but they'd actually also learned to speak Mandarin quite clearly. So that was, that was not a challenge in that particular village. Some of the elderly people, I would actually need someone like Morubwa to serve as my translator, because they might, uh, they would speak a very, very thick version uh, for, of Mandarin Chinese and be more comfortable in their own, in their own language. Uh, so that was the situation there. I have in other reporting in China. I've actually done uh, local dialect to. I've had uh, local dialect to Mandarin translation. So, for example, Chongqing has got a very strong accent. I actually uh, 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 hired a young person there who was a you know someone who actually spoke very standard Mandarin who also spoke the local dialect to not tra- not interpret into English but into Mandarin. <laughs>
0: Well, I I think, yeah, I remember um, once thinking that, you know, the difference between some place like Shanghai and some of these smaller villages is is about as far a gap as you could imagine between, say, London and Lhasa, for example, uh, you know, in terms of the, 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 the inequality, but also the language and the customs. And I think that's something that people outside of China don't necessarily understand. We all think because there's a standardized written system and Putonghua spoken all across that somehow... It's, it's much more uniform than we imagine. But um, I guess what I really found so fascinating about your book was, you know, the central tenet of, you know, we, we're very used to um, outside of China, seeing China as this great economic miracle, um, you know, the rising tides, the 300, 400 million people lifted out of poverty, so to speak. And your book sort of pulls back the curtain a little bit and sort of shows that, you know, that's really quite not the case because of these two fundamental huge iron bands that sort of keep... Um, migrant folks sort of they're both tethered to the land that they may might have left like 20 30 years ago and probably don't even know how to farm but they can't sell it uh, but at the same time they uh, can't fully assimilate into any of the bigger cities because they can't get any of the benefits that accrue as a city resident um, they can't send their kids to school they can't get a medical system the the message is come here work power our economic engine and then go back home <laughs> right but this situation, as you describe it, is to some extent changing, right? And that's partly because the great economic engine that China has been powered on for a long time, which is cheap labor, is no longer the case. As you mentioned, automation is is happening. So isn't there some sort of a huge push to change the way things are, or is there some tension because of the way to keep things the way they are?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. I think there is, yeah, China is undergoing... Uh, Uh, an economic shift that I would argue is um, as probably as big as uh, you have to go back to Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening uh, to find such a big shift. And that's really this move from the factory to the world model, as you say, based on low cost labor, producing goods mainly for export to the world um, and for now to a much more uh, domestic market driven economy, an economy driven by the service industries rather than manufacturing and investment. And uh, this is happening uh, very quickly in China. Um, I would say that the two-year trade war with the US plus COVID-19 has really brought home to the Chinese officials that this transition needs to happen much more quickly than before. And they've been talking about it for probably at least a decade, that they, that they, want to, that they must undergo this transition. They've seen, the, they've seen wages go up. Uh, average manufacturing wages today in China are actually higher than in Mexico or Malaysia. And uh, so on the one hand, they've tried to automate their factories, They've done a, and they've been quite successful. On the other hand, they really are trying to push this much more domestic market-driven economy. Um, so they know that they have to make this transition. Uh, as I argue in my book, uh, they face this really... Uh, so, until today, seemingly insurmountable obstacle, which is the fact that they have these policies in place that ensure that about one half of the population uh, aren't 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 on a path to become middle class consumers. Uh, you have a situation that economists call precautionary savings, which is a big problem in China. Migrant workers, in particular, feel that their futures, and 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 they they're right, I think. Are, are precarious. Uh, they uh, they have to, as I said, uh, pay for their children to go to schools, private schools that are expensive in the cities, or uh, their children um, uh, send them back to the countryside. On the healthcare side, uh, they live in fear of having a medical emergency that they won't necessarily get covered because they need to be back in their villages where they probably couldn't get good care in order to to get proper coverage, so what you what you see is a very high savings rate across mm-hmm. China, um, and therefore the flip side, uh, a uh, uh, low uh, low con- domestic consumption. So China's got about just quickly on to get into the, ec- the the economic weeds here. About China's been struggling to lift domestic consumption as a proportion of, of its overall economy for years now. It's stuck just below forty percent. That's far lower than the global average. And, uh, and so they know that they need to change that. Uh, then you get to the issue of why aren't they reforming these policies? And there's a bunch of different reasons we can talk about later.
0: Yeah, well, we will get into that in a little bit. But I had an interesting question from a reader, which is uh, of pertaining to that last picture you showed of the Moore family. Um, you know, they you know, they said that Morubo and his wife had to send the little girl to a private school because she doesn't have the residency papers to get into the local schools. And that's way more expensive. And he was kind of curious about what kind of a relative perspective on this cost would be relative to income so we could get some idea. Um, do you want to talk about that or rent? I mean,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, well, I the, mean, their income is very uh, variable because they have this small business and they have good, you know, they have good months and they have bad months. And they were it was tough. I, I would I have to say it's been tough for them uh, to ensure that they pay their rent, which is a quite a modest apartment, which is where they have their office as well. But it's expensive in places like Dongguan now, uh, far more expensive than when he went there as a young factory worker. Uh, so they have the rent. Uh, it could be uh, again, it's it's variable uh, depending on wh- what sort of business they've done that particular month. But uh, it could easily be uh, the tuition could be a multiple of of monthly rent. Yeah. Um, and,
0: I, and I think if I'm correct on this, Tiff, because I, I might, it's been a couple of years since I was in China reporting, but the part of the problem isn't so much also the cost, but then you're kind of going in the under the table, not fully you know, um, state-sanctioned kind of a school system. Migrant kids are going to these you know, kind of to the side kind of schools. So the problem becomes later on is they don't have the right kind of school certification to progress at the higher levels and maybe even get into college, right? Relative to if they were going to a state-sanctioned public school, in the right areas right so that's a problem you're paying true to nose for it. inferior education that's under the table that isn't really going to equip you to climb that ladder right it's yeah, absolutely that case?
1: They, the way the system works in China they, they they those children that do stay with their parents in the cities pretty much have to go back to the countryside when they're getting ready for uh the high school. And yeah. The, yeah for both the the
0: HATs, and yeah the Gao Gao.
1: because uh that, that's the requirement that they take those tests china is a very test-based system as you know and uh in order to get into uh high school and then to get into a good college you have to take the you have to take the test where you're officially registered so those children often right before high school will go back and try to get into a uh, rural uh, rural high school and interestingly in some cases uh They find that they're actually not as well prepared as the children that have stayed behind because they are in these private schools that aren't very good. What it means in effect is there's an extremely high dropout rate, much higher than the Chinese government likes to admit. But there's been some very good research by uh, different scholars, in particular, Scott Rizell at Stanford, looking at uh, what's the true dropout rate for rural kids in China. And it's very high. And it has to do with that fact, the lack of good preparation in these small, So it's a
0: kind of a conundrum, right? You either if you're a migrant worker, you know, you, you have to go to the big city to probably get some kind of a job and be financially viable to support your children. But you either have the choice of leaving them behind. And then you know, all the socio economic problems, because they're unsupervised, uh, or you bring them with you, but then they get substandard education, and they don't uh, progress in a way that you'd hope. Right. I mean, there's so many heartbreaking stories about all these kids were left behind um, and um, there was a case of suicide or their, their grandparents can't supervise them because, you know, it's a very different system or um, dropout rates are huge. Or or in some cases, even if they do stay behind, it's not necessarily clear that the path to schooling is better because the kid, the parents aren't there to keep an eye on them and to make sure that their develop it until phases are I mean, I've heard of some stories where they say you know the kids the left behind children the problem with the plight is they are not actually gaining the skill sets that would even enable them to get the kind of jobs that their parents would be able to get in a factory uh because it's so it's it's three steps back in a way right um yeah i'm sure you have a ton of really interesting stories like that when you talk to the moors and all these other folks right
1: yeah, I think there's a there's a real serious problem. The the what China's done over the last 10-15 years is uh close a lot of the small village schools which were uh, uh admittedly of very poor quality. And what they've done is create these big impersonal boarding schools. The idea is good that they will sort of uh they'll uh, concentrate the scarce resources and they'll have more migrant kids or rural kids getting access to the few, you know, good teachers out there. Um, and that they'll perhaps have better meals because they'll be eating in the cafeteria. Um, And there's been a fair amount of money put in by the central government as well into trying to build up the physical infrastructure of these boarding schools. But the reality is, I I spent quite a bit of time visiting these boarding schools. And the reality is, uh, whereas the physical facilities might be okay, or even in some cases good, they'll have sports grounds and so on, the uh, soft infrastructure of teaching Uh, issues of psychological problems that they face being away from their parents. Typically, they'll see their parents once a year when their parents come back for the Lunar New Year. None of these issues are dealt with. And there are very, as I said earlier, very high dropout rates from these big boarding schools as well.
0: So what we've discussed so far seems like a very internal issue, right? These are China's problems. China has, in fact, created a second-class citizenship where their migrants, in a way, are sort of internal immigrants that never can belong or assimilate within the, the greater system. Now, to some of our audience, to maybe probably most of our audience who you know, are from outside of China, how does this relate in a global economic scale? I mean, what are some of the spillover effects that could affect say US-China relations, for example?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I, I, referring to the title of my book and I'm often asked what's, what is the myth of Chinese capitalism? I'm really sort of, it's shorthand for a couple different myths. And one myth to my mind is the fact that this very impressive economic reform that we've seen going on for years is still continuing at the pace that it was before. And I argue that it really has stalled under the present leadership and uh, and Xi Jinping. Um, Another related myth, which is very important to the world, is that China will continue to generate more and grow its middle class and have an ever larger middle class. And I I, I think this is a a myth that, uh, uh, that that the world's multinationals have become, first of all, believe and have become very reliant on. This idea that the, the growth that they've been accustomed to, which has been very impressive, and the market growth, you know, the markets that they've been able to tap ever larger, will continue on this trajectory. And I don't think without these reforms, you're going to see that. So I think we're going to see a stalling of the middle class. Uh, you know, on a country scale, uh, much of the world has become accustomed to China being the growth driver. Um, and again, uh, without reform of these policies, And real changes to the economy, I don't see that continuing, and that, of course, has uh, implications for the global economy and and companies around the world.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what you're describing is a situation that would, I think, to some folks, suggest that there's huge discontentment and um, you know potentially huge unemployment issues, and then you know which leads to the question about social um, you know uprisings or changes, you know. Met for a long time, many people assumed uh, that once China opened up economically, that China would become like the West. You know, we would they would be they would demand democratic reforms. They would want more freedoms. Now we're clearly seeing that that isn't the case, and China is going to be whatever China is is going to be. But then, then the question about what we're talking about, therefore, with discontentment with low employment, they typically seem to be a recipe for problems which will you know uh you know could you know result in social uprisings or anything but do you think that's also a myth potentially or you know what, what 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 would the crystal ball show potentially
1: well i think the myth is that the that the urban middle class the well-educated urban middle class is going to become a source of uh social change and this sort of the the nimby idea not in my backyard that you you know you do well you get you get educated you buy an apartment and uh Factory goes up across the way, and you you say, uh, you know, there was no there was no public uh, cons- consultation before this factory was built. Uh, we need a, a real political system that that uh, that doesn't surprise us with things like that. I think that is a myth, and and that was something that certainly in my earlier years in China, what uh, seemed to be sort of a given. This idea that with economic growth, uh, particularly urban China and well-educated China, would become a source of political change. And, and of course, this is what we heard from US politicians, Bill Clinton and others, uh, when the decision was made to bring China into the World Trade Organization. This was quite um, uh, quite explicit that with time, uh, political change would follow economic change. And there has been no evidence of that happening at all. I think the reason, one of the reasons we all got it wrong, and I put myself in that group as well, um, was that uh, they, uh, We sort of miss this real reality in China, which I would argue uh, uh, a defining uh, contract between the government and the party and the people has been uh, uh, not always said explicitly, but very important, which is we, the party, will guarantee that your living standards will continue to rise, and you, the people will uh, not demand real civil rights you won't demand a free press and uh, you will accept the fact that we that you have one one party uh, ruling all the Chinese Communist Party and I think that bargain has been very effective in uh, in effect uh, buying off if you will, uh, political you know political aspirations or ideals of of, of the better off people in China. Um, I think that that bargain, was already fraying for, significantly for migrant workers and for real, rural people in China. For the reasons I just said, uh, migrant workers have done and rural people have done uh, far, more, they've done far more poorly than the rest of the population. And I do think uh, that there is a growing awareness and, and uh, 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 that, that this is the case. And that it's happening because of a structural system, the hukou system and the, and the land system. And I think that's something when I first started reporting, most uh, rural people and migrants were unaware of, but I think today they are quite aware of it.
0: So, but it, with, rise, with that level of rising discontent, you know, I mean, people have likened that social contract or that bargain as a, as a bicycle that has to keep moving, otherwise it's going to fall over one way or the other. But it sounds like as far as migrant workers are concerned, that bicycle momentum is slowing down. If So there's the potential for some tilt or not. I mean, do we throw that out the window too? I mean, yeah. What? I think, I mean,
1: I do think that this is a really, uh, uh, this is a challenging time for the Chinese government, the Chinese government's desire to continue uh, without any uh, hiccups in its control. And I, they're very aware of that. If you look at speeches and so on, they're very aware that this transition is a very difficult one. Um, There is more uncertainty in the lives of migrant workers now in China than there has been in over 20 years since I first moved there. Uh, They are, uh, in many cases, being strongly encouraged to leave the cities and go back to the villages of the countryside, Uh, the idea being that they can reinvent themselves as small entrepreneurs. Uh, In Guizhou, which I spent so much time in, uh, the push is to create sort of ecotourism because it's a beautiful relatively untouched by industry province. And so they're hoping to, uh, that these migrants can go back and create little beds and bre- bed and breakfasts in their uh, villages and attract uh, urban people with money to come vacation. Uh, but everyone's trying to do that in Guizhou. There's a there's, uh, way too much supply of these small bed and breakfasts. So I think there's this real uncertainty about what happens next. The other big uh, employment uh, path forward, at least in the government's perspective, is the service industry. Um, and uh, we see a couple of years ago, there's actually more migrants working in the service industry than there are in manufacturing and construction, which is a big shift from before. Uh, the problem is, um, and there, there's more and more of these, uh, You know, most of these jobs that the migrants now are doing are very low end and often, you know, maybe not even as good as as the factory jobs. So the very common one, which is a brutal Delivery, job,
0: right? The, the gig, the gig- the
1: economy, yeah. yeah. Got some. There's been some great reporting out of China recently, including by NPR, about that. Uh, it's a brutal job. They if they get fined all the time for not delivering quickly, similar to what happens in the United States, actually. Um, and this is the main job that migrant workers are now doing as they leave the as they leave the factory jobs, and that's a very very difficult uh, uh, source of employment.
0: So, do you think there's any? chance a possibility that they will be ch- significant changes to the hukou system. I mean you've outlined certainly humanitarian reasons why it shouldn't be there, but do you think they might be, you know?
1: What's interesting, I again, I mean I think I think that this is the time if there ever was one when the Chinese government needs to reform the hukou system and they I should say uh know that. I mean they've been talking at least since uh, at least for the last seven years, they've been talking about uh, the need to reform the Hukou system specifically to bring more of rural and migrant people into the consumer economy and try to make this transition to a much more domestic market-driven economy. As I said earlier, right now with the global trade frictions, particularly with the U.S., uh, with what happened, what's happened with COVID-19, China is very aware that uh, it needs to much more rely on its own the spending power of its own people. So they need to make that move. They've been talking about reforming the Huco for a very long time. However, um, and to date, uh, what they've done has been uh, not very ambitious at all. There's been piecemeal programs, pilot cities that have been opened where Go migrants-
0: to East, many of them, right? Oh. Yeah,
1: typically these places. Uh, are uh, not necessarily the, those places that have strong local economies or, or might be attractive to the migrant workers. So you see a situation where uh, uh, where the, the sort of this chicken-egg egg dilemma, where the Chinese government says, here's a city that has a lackluster economy. Maybe it even is one of these so-called ghost cities where there's too much uh, empty residential apartments that haven't sold. Let's, this is a perfect place to have a larger pop, uh, population influx. They open that to hukou reform for the migrant workers, but there's no jobs there, and there's this idea somehow that the migrants are going to come in and I don't know how gather enough money to buy a, a, a you know to buy a local apartment and somehow find a job, and that's not really how it works. Many of the cities that are the most attractive, the big showcase Shanghai, cities, Shanghai, like,
0: Beijing, uh, yeah, they're Guangzhou.
1: actually restricting. They're they're actually uh, physically driving out the migrant workers. One of their most common tactics is to shut down these small private schools that cater to the migrant uh, children, and then the parents don't have a place to put their children in school. Um, but they, both Beijing and Shanghai have actually set uh, growth, population growth targets, which are actually reduction. So they're trying to reduce the total number of people in those cities. And uh, the way that they do it, typically, is to get rid of the migrant population.
0: I remember at the time they they used to sell those hukos on the black market and they used to be like really expensive, right? You had a Beijing hukou. It could be anywhere. Like you could sell it for a hundred thousand dollars or something um, at that time. And I remember when I was researching my book about the one child policy and, and going to one of these like dating scenarios just to see how people were doing it. And all the Beijing guys, all they would go in and they'd be like, you know, I have Beijing hukou. therefore I am so desirable <laughs> and a big, mar- <laughs> and and I, I'm I'm pretty sure that's probably the case still, right, Tim? I think it
1: is. The uh, I mean, they some of it's uh, I, my understanding is the market's been limited by Xi Jinping's crackdown on corruption mm-hmm. and also the fact that they are very serious now about actually reducing the numbers of people in some of these big cities. But yes, it was a, it was a, a vibrant market, very expensive to buy a hukou. A lot of college students uh, that had come to places like Beijing and Shanghai, um, but then didn't have a job with a state enterprise and didn't, didn't have anyone to marry to get a hukou, which is t- typically a way to get an urban hukou, would then actually buy these on the black market.
0: Um, this is an interesting question that sort of came up, by the way, about unemployment and whether or not Jack Ma has, you know, enabled, you know, by enabling, you know, Jack Ma is the founder of Alibaba, which is kind of like a version of, you know, China's Amazon plus uh, <laughs> supersized, Um And so what it's done is enable a lot of online shipping to rural parts. So this reader's question is, you know, has that. You know, enabled uh, any economic improvements, or enabled you know probably migrants to stay where they are, and decentralized the whole emphasis on Beijing and Shanghai. Any thoughts on that one, Tiff? Uh,
1: yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the probably the most notable uh, thing that it has done is created this new industry of motorcycle of delivery people, which is a brutal, brutal industry. Um, they do earn money there. Sometimes it's comparable to what they earn in the factories, but it's a it's a it's a very very uh, brutal job to do. So that's that's one thing it's done. It's created this enormous new ecosystem of delivery jobs. Uh in the countryside there is a phenomena which uh not only Alibaba but the World Bank has touted of uh these so-called uh Taobao villages. Uh, Taobao being uh the uh the company that belongs to Alibaba.
0: of so like uh, eBay, yeah. Yeah,
1: right. yeah. And what it has in it, it has allowed uh in many cases uh industry to go into the countryside and indeed in some some cases migrant workers would uh uh, have jobs working much closer to where they grew up um uh in these little taobao villages and they've gone there however for the obvious reason that costs are lower and uh regulatory issues are if, if they still exist they can be ignored so what i saw which was very interesting um in some of these Taobao villages, which I spent some time in, is on the one hand, yes, it's providing jobs in rural China uh, uh, for migrant workers, which is a good thing. On the other hand, I saw in some cases a uh, return of some of these very uh, questionable, I would call them sweatshop practices, that I had written about in the late 90s, early 2000s in China, which we saw sort of disappear in places like Dongguan, or at least... Most, in most cases, go away. Um, as as costs, went, as wages went up, as the global sweatshop uh, anti, anti-sweatshop lobby uh, started to put pressure on the big labels, uh, some of this stuff started to disappear. But in any case, we're seeing some of that reappear now, uh, where workers are not being paid according to the labor law and uh, environmental regulations are being skirted in these Taobao villages. So it's really a mixed picture.
0: Mm. This is an interesting question from the audience. I'm not quite sure how you're going to answer this one, Tiff, but I'll lob it at you. I think this, this is partly prompted by all the interest in what's going on in Hong Kong recently, uh, particularly with the arrests of some of the um, young labor activists, um, young activists, uh, Joshua um, and, and some, Wong and some of the other ones that I think just happened today or yesterday. So this question is, how much influence in the political economic landscape of China? Does these recent changes in the Hong Kong relationship with the PRC have on this whole myth of Chinese capitalism. Uh,
1: well, I mean, first of all, as the, I don't, I'm not sure this is the question, but I think an interesting observation point to make is that um, I, I, you know, there's always been, and I think even amongst the Chinese leadership, this fear that unrest in Hong Kong will 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 seep into China and that it'll it'll be an example for activists within China. Um, I don't see that happening now. Um, in most cases. I think the Chinese government um, um, has been quite successful in making it a very nationalistic issue. I think your average Chinese in the mainland uh, probably feels resentment towards the protesters in, Chi- in Hong Kong. And they also um, have been fed a lot of uh, misinformation about just how violent the, uh, the, the Hong Kong protesters are. The Chinese media has focused the state-controlled media on presenting this picture of violent young people in Hong Kong that are wreaking, you know, chaos and havoc uh, in this beautiful coastal place that, in China's mind, uh, of course, belongs to China and Chinese people's mind. So, uh, so there is. Uh, I don't think. I don't think that's happening. Um, I do think that the unrest in Hong Kong is. Uh, tremendously worrying uh, is a, you know a tremendous source of worry for the Communist Party. I think their you know sovereignty above all is an issue that animates them. Going back to their you know their history of almost becoming a, you know colonized during the Treaty Port era 100 years ago, they they talk about the century of national humiliation uh, back when they uh, when they were almost colonized. So sovereignty losing control of parts of China is a huge issue. I think that, uh, quickly, that the national, the decision to implement such a draconian national security law what, it reflects that. Uh, I think that the Chinese leadership under Xi Jinping knew that the national security law would be, uh, you know, that it might bring more Hong Kong people to the streets, that there would be a strong reaction globally, including from the U.S. And China made the calculation, that it was worth it because they are so concerned and so worried about uh, losing control over this key part of China. Uh, they decided we're gonna, go, we're gonna go in really heavy-handed and, and institute this new law.
0: So, Tiff, I mean, we've we've had a really good chat at this point about a lot of things which have been sort of burbling under the surface uh, of China for quite a while. You know, you've been there for 20 years. So you sort of see this whole arc. But one of the things we haven't discussed, which is the thing that's basically shaped our whole reality in the last year, which is the pandemic, coronavirus, right? How has this uh, sort of accentuated or changed any of the themes in your book?
1: Yeah, well I I should note that uh some the, nowhere in my book of course is the pandemic mentioned. My book came out uh in the spring in March. I was in New York City. Um I I had to uh, I saw my planned book activities unfortunately some of them some of them canceled or delayed and I had to leave New York early because there was the realization right then. That actually, this was a serious problem in New York as well so uh, so nowhere in my book do I mention the pandemic. I would argue that uh, the themes that I deal with in my book the the challenges of inequality, uh, the necessity to try to move forward on reforming these policies um, are only uh, are only more obvious with in light of the pandemic. what we 've seen so far in China, if you look at the at the economy uh, to date, uh, obviously during the first quarter of this year. Uh, negative growth, uh, uh, real hit to the Chinese economy. We've seen in the second and third quarters uh, a remarkable rebound. I think in the third quarter, it was 4.9% mm-hmm. GDP growth. And that is uh, remarkable and admirable and is, frankly, a credit to China's uh, uh, ability in uh, controlling the virus. Uh, but if you look more closely at the growth, uh, you will see uh, that actually much of it is being driven by investment. Uh, it's very lopsided. Uh, if you look at uh, consumer spending in China, it's been much more focused on or much more, uh, much more active when you look at higher end uh, goods and higher income people. So you've seen a surge in, uh, in sales of things like SUVs and luxury handbags, all that's back in China. But if you look at actually uh, sort of mass market uh, sales, it's actually been quite lackluster. And that is a reflection of the fact that uh, that a, a very large portion of, of the Chinese people are, if not out of work, and many migrants are still out of work, are facing uh, real questions about the you know whether they're going to have a job in the following month. So you see this lopsided uh, recovery, which uh, I would argue uh, is just yet another reason why China needs to reform these policies, the Hukou policy and the dual land policy. And and put the economy on a more sustainable footing.
0: Okay, we've only got time for one last question. Unfortunately, this has been so great talking to you on this, but this is a question that, um, which I'm trying to wrap into quite a few of these, um, as well as my own interests, and sort of uh, round it off, which, you know, there's a lot of people asking about the big question about what you know, which is still whether democracy would work for China and you know, whether what we Chinese have seen with uh, what's happened with the Trump administration here has affected you know the whole US China relations and what does this mean for the future. Um, and I want to wrap this in with my question which is you know tiff you've you spent 20 years in china reporting being on the ground there and coming up with all these great nuggets and stories which can only be done really when you're there when you've been there but of course and this is related to the whole fraying of the u.s china relations we're there are very few correspondents, foreign correspondents. China is increasingly kicking out many foreign correspondents. They have been doing so. It's increasingly hard to operate as a uh, foreign correspondent in China. You've seen that over the years. So, I guess the big question here is: What does this mean for the future? Um, are we going to see a reset, maybe with Biden back and uh, Biden with the Biden administration, or are we going to see a continued fraying? What are some of these lessons learned? What is the future potentially with? Are we going to see more, less? Uh, you know, what do you think? What yeah, well, is
1: lost on, on the question of uh, uh, you know the the journalist issue, the journalist expulsions? I think actually um, one of the things that I hope the Biden administration d- does is um, back away from this sort of tit for tat uh, uh, game that's been going on, where China expels well, or the U.S. expels some Chinese journalists, or or limits their visa duration. Declaring the typically declaring the Chinese journalists as state media or state actors, Um, and then China responds by kicking out Western journalists. I think this is uh, very bad. I think the um, uh, it's key to have uh, in both countries to have Chinese journalists, no matter (laughs) whether in some cases they you know what their relationship might be with the party, and uh, and also have uh, uh, um, foreign journalists in China writing about China. So I think that needs to happen. Uh, in terms of a possible reset, uh, I do think that we're going to see uh, some nice words on both sides. I think uh, it's likely that the Biden admi- administration will take uh, a much less sort of, I would almost call aggressive approach that, that we've seen under the Trump administration. I guess Biden said yesterday uh, in a New York Times interview that he's not going to immediately lift the tariffs that uh, Trump has imposed, but it wouldn't surprise me if uh those are downplayed or eventually lifted. Some of the technology restrictions that um, that haven't actually necessarily been instituted anyway. That the Trump administration has an, has announced the ban on TikTok, for example, which they keep giving us one. They keep giving them one more week. Um, hasn't actually happened. I think it's even less likely that those bans will be carried out. So that's all good. Um, I think. I do think, and this is an important point in my mind. Uh, what we've seen an in election in, in just one of these two capitals, right, in, in Washington. And uh, uh, I think in Beijing, we've seen uh, it made very clear that, you know, that the that the leader in charge has no intention of going anywhere. He even changed the constitution so that, that there are no term limits, so that he can stay on for many, many years. Um, he also, at the recent uh he still is not a, there's been no hint uh, as to who the successors of Xi Jinping would be typically at this point we would know so he's not going anywhere i think the ball if you will is just as much in beijing's court to try to uh, improve the relationship and so i expect uh whereas we'll see some some improvements i i don't expect any sort of reset at all i think the tensions between the two countries uh are still very much there and Don't see any evidence that they're going to go away.
0: Well, globally as well, I do wonder as well. I mean, like if you know, the rest of the world sort of wondering, you know, seeing China rising and they're seeing the U.S., particularly this handling of COVID and so on forth, sort of falling down in its global leadership uh, positioning. And you know, do you think, for example, the elections might have potentially changed that? Okay, there's a you know Biden's coming in. Or do you think that, you know, they look, okay, Xi Jinping is going to be around for quite a foreseeable amount of future. What we've seen from the U.S. exercise in democracy is this is not as strong as we think it is, and it's very volatile. Who knows? Trump could be back again in 2024. Let's make our bets accordingly with Beijing as the big brother (laughs) Um, and investments and following through and all these other things. Uh, What do you think of of that whole thinking?
1: Uh, There's, you know, that... uh, there's some truth to that, I guess, uh, or some. But I, I would also point out that uh, China hasn't j- just created ill will with the United States, and the U.S. created ill will with China. But China's there's a lot of ill will between a lot of different countries around the world. and China, I mean, look what's happening in Australia, uh, which in effect China's threatened uh, the trading relationship uh, because of, I guess, initially because Australia. Had the temerity to ask for a global, you know, an independent uh, investigation into the origin of COVID nineteen. Well, China, in a very sort of ham-fisted way, has 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 uh, you know threatened uh, Australian um, threatened Australia and certainly and its and its exports of wine and beef and barley and so on. Um, so I, I think right now um, all reports the people of Australia are very upset with China. And you can extend that to India, where we saw a bloody border clash. Uh, you know, uh, the, the list goes on. I do think that one thing that might happen under Biden, which is very good and I think is overdue, is uh, sort of a restoration of some of our relationships with our allies, uh, including in Asia, uh, with Japan and South Korea, maybe, uh, get closer to some uh, non-traditional allies like Vietnam. And that actually, I think, will put more pressure on China. And it would work as sort of a counter trend to what you mentioned, this idea that that uh, countries will say, well, Xi Jinping's not going away. We better get used to it and accept uh, uh, the relationship as it is.
0: Well, you know, I wish we could have more time to just chat on about all this. This has been such a great conversation. It's been so good to see you again, Tiff. Um, I- really want to thank you for giving us the time to have this great, important conversation. And I also want to tell members of the audience to please purchase Tiff's book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, wherever books are sold. And um, the club will soon be posting this video um, along on its website. So that's www.commonwealthclub.org. So Thank you guys very much for this um, very stimulating conversation that we've had. And um, best of luck, Tiff. It's always great to see you. Take care.
1: Likewise. Thanks so much. man.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you